Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Ashley, how are things in lovely Charlottesville? I, I continue. I spent one year there, and I continue to be just to just miss it. I just want to go back. It's such a happy place. I spent four years there, and I miss it every day. Alan, you and I had a nice cocktail on the roof of a restaurant that's no longer there. What happened to it? Uh, you know, it's one of those Bermuda Triangles of restaurants mm-hmm. that constantly changes ownership, even though it's a fabulous location. So, yes, I remember you were clerking and already nostalgic for Charlottesville. Yeah, I think it was like day four. And I realized I I, I had just arrived and I had you know, never live. You know, I'd spent my whole life between uh, Boston and D.C. So Charlottesville was my exotic real America experience. And I got to this little college town. And the first day I was there, Scott, you'll appreciate this. I wandered down the mall, which is like the main drag. And there was a concert playing. And it was this band that I had never heard of at the time, but came have come to love. Dave oh, Matthews Dave band. Matthews no, band. No, no, it was not. I'm not that old. No, it was, this band was called Love Cannon, which is a, a bluegrass cover band of 80s pop songs. Uh, and they played a bluegrass version of of Africa by Toto. And I knew that I was in the right place. Oh, and I just spent the rest of the year just loving every moment of living in Charlottesville. It's like that cheesy song, I know I'll never love this way again, which I won't try to sing. Terrible, <laughs> but, uh, it is a pretty fabulous town. Yes. I will say I have never met a university that is more in love with itself than UVA. Does that seem fair? And I'm not, I'm not even saying, look, that's actually not even meant as a criticism, but it really, man, UVA loves UVA. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's true. It's good for alumni giving. Yeah, it definitely is. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here as always with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to be joined once again by one of our favorite lawfare contributors, fresh out of government, back in that ivory tower. Finally, having gotten some rest and recuperation, we are joined by none other than University of Virginia Law School's own Ashley Deeks. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on Rational Security. Hey, thanks very much for having me. We are so excited to have you back on to get you back in the mode of having uh, uninformed opinions and sharing them with the outside world as opposed to keeping those uninformed opinions in the halls of government. But how are you feeling? Are you feeling rested and recuperated from what I, I'm sure was a very uh, intensive period of in, in government in your last position for the last year or two? Yeah, so definitely intensive. I did get a little bit more sleep than prior NSC legal uh, officials had told me that I would. I was fortunate to live about five minutes from the office, so my commute was was cut down considerably and did not cut into my sleep. But uh, it was an amazing experience. Uh, it's nice to be back. I, I love to teach, but it was really great to see the government from a different perspective than I had seen before. Obviously, NSC in the White House is pretty different from being in the agencies. So 
So I learned a lot. And, and just to uh, just just for uh, for the sake of our listeners, what your position was? You were deputy legal advisor at the National Security Council. Is that right? Yep, correct. It's it was weirdly sort of a, a three hatted position. I think I was associate counsel, White White House associate counsel. So we worked for Dana Remus. I was the deputy NSE legal advisor, and then I was uh, I think it was assistant to the president. No, special assistant to the president, a SAP. So it made for for uh, for long titles, but at the end of the day, the the bulk of the work was as deputy legal advisor at NSE, working with the the team there, the legal advisor, and then we have about uh, six detailees from the agencies who come over as lawyers to to do a ton of work over there. And and just to be clear, this means that anything you say on RATSEC is just straight attributed to President Biden right now, right? That's right. how this works. If I get if I got it right, am I correct? Cannon will be used against me. And- in a court, of, a court of public opinion. Alan, Alan likes to make our guests feel as uncomfortable as possible totally. right off the bat. <laughs> Wherever obviously, we can obviously, nothing I say here should be attributed to anybody except me. <laughs> no, what I was what I was trying to do is I was trying to get a fun segue into that disclaimer, which I knew that we needed to get into there some point early go. in the episode. Yeah. Being, I'm being a good host, Scott. There we go. <laughs> well, as folks are hopefully aware from our B-roll, Ashley is now back situated in the beautiful city of Charlottesville, Virginia, at the University of Virginia. And so in that honor, we are calling this the Wahoo edition in honor of my alma mater. And it's one of its more peculiar sayings because we have are thrilled to have another Wahoo on the podcast to talk over some of the week's big national security news, including our first topic, the bridge and pummel crowd. UK's destruction of a symbolic bridge linking Russia to Crimea has observers worried about a new round of escalation, particularly as Russia has responded with missile strikes on a range of civilian targets across the country, including a German consulate in Kiev, with promises of more to come. Are we entering a new brutal phase of the conflict? What can be done to stop its civilian toll or to keep the escalatory spiral from spinning out of control? Topic two, finally, finally, some decency and moderation on the Supreme Court. I hope I had the right right gauge of indignation for that particular title. <laughs> you got the good, you know, cranky old man on getting, yelling at the kids to get out. I've of been mastering yeah. it throughout most of my 30s <laughs> as they slowly come to their inevitable end. Uh, last week, the Supreme Court took up not one, but two, albeit two very closely related, cases that center on how to apply Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a law that provides internet companies with immunity for liability arising from user-generated content they host and protects their ability to moderate that content. What might this judicial scrutiny mean for the future of content moderation on the internet? And topic three, 1001 Arabian Slights. No, you have to sing it. You have to sing 1001 Arabian Slights. I think I may have reused this title previous to be 1001 American uh, Arabian Flights uh, when we were talking about <laughs> flights between Israel and the Middle East. Just keep on so giving apologies, it. guys. But it's a great movie. It's, it's a great fun. And I'm running out of words that rum- rhyme with nights. So that's okay. <laughs> this might be the last one we can use this on. Nonetheless, Saudi Arabia's decision to cut oil production, a move expected to drive up oil prices and slow the global economy to the benefit of Russia and other oil producers, has some members of Congress up in arms. This is especially true as it came following a summer visit by President Biden that controversially seemed to signal a willingness to thaw relations with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, which have grown icy since his involvement in the 2018 killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. What do these steps mean for the future of the U.S.-Saudi relationship? Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started with our first topic. Yeah, so this is our what has become our bi-weekly. Let's check in what is happening in Ukraine. And I feel like every two weeks, the conclusion is 
Ukraine's doing okay, but we're getting closer and closer to nuclear war. And I feel like the last two weeks have really pushed that uh, forward. I mean, just in the last two or three weeks, we've had Russia's sham referendum and annexations of eastern Ukraine. We've had Ukraine continuing to push through to the east and uh, to the south. Obviously, we had uh, you know over the weekend the Ukrainian, uh, or I think what is all but assumed to be Ukraine's uh, attack on the Crimea uh, Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea to the Russian mainland, both of strategic importance because it's one of Russia's main supply routes and also of immense symbolic importance to Putin. It actually happened on Putin's birthday, uh, which is just a nice little twist of the knife. Russia then responded with a series of pretty brutal airstrikes uh, across uh, Ukraine. They've killed 19 people so far. Uh, They've hit the German consulate, as uh, Scott mentioned, um, pretty clearly aimed almost entirely at civilian targets. Uh, Very little even pretense of any kind of military necessity there. Um, And then in, in the background, though, kind of in any other week, this would be, you know, front page news. You know, Ukraine is increasingly suspected of being behind the car bomb uh, that killed the uh, Russian ultranationalist Alexander Dugin's daughter. Um, On the other hand, Russia is increasingly thought to be behind the explosion and leak of the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, And just to top it all off, President Biden just announced that we are the closest we have gotten to nuclear Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's great. You know, before we get into these individual issues, uh, I want to actually ask you, Ashley, first, as a you know foreign policy, foreign affairs law expert, and someone who recently you know sat in the White House for a year and therefore probably just has a, a better perspective on all of this than the rest of us. Are you more freaked out, less freaked out, similarly freaked out, and how freaked out on a scale of one to ten freakouts? On a scale of one to ten, um, I'm pretty freaked out. So, in particular obviously scared for civilians in Ukraine. It sounds like, you know, the gloves are just off at this point, And these strikes are in significant part trying to actually instill terror in the Ukrainian population, which of course is a violation of the laws of war. But, you know, I've read some suggestions that one reason the strikes look like they did in the past couple of days is that the, the Russians that Putin might be running out of precision weapons, which of course uh, forecasts only uh, worse things for Ukrainian civilians, um, even if the Russian military were trying to direct uh, these strikes to military objectives, which I'm not sure they were. So that's, of course, concerning. I think your lead up raises questions about escalation, uh, significant questions about escalation. I uh, I read a uh, an article yesterday where Bill Burns describes Putin as an apostle of payback, uh, which I found to be a very troubling and kind of dark sense of where we might be headed here. I don't have, obviously, any special visibility about what Putin has in mind. I think our military and our intel agencies are very hard at work trying to figure out what he might do next. But as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, there are a lot of things in his in his bag of, of tricks, including potentially sabotage both against European targets and maybe also other other targets that are outside of Ukraine. So, you know, it could be that the U.S. government is, as it has before, trying to have back channel conversations with the Russians to urge them to 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 stand down. I don't know, but I am pretty, pretty alarmed. Yeah, and it is it is notable on on that front that in in announcing the retaliatory strikes 
for the the Crimea Bridge attack. Uh, Putin blamed everything on Ukraine rather than engage in what has come to be increasingly kind of anti-Western, anti-NATO rhetoric, which I know some Kremlin watchers have been trying to or potentially interpret as a, a sign that maybe he's trying to de-escalate. Though, as you said, Ashley, I mean, if his de-escalation looks like trying to you know raise large parts of Ukraine to the ground, that's that's cold comfort for the Ukrainians. You know, I want to I want to follow up with you on on that point. I mean, is there any reason to think that this strategy can work? I mean, especially given Ukraine's recent successes and what seems to be increasingly high morale among Ukrainians. You know, there's increasingly normalized talk in Ukraine that the the goal is not just to get back to the kind of pre-February status quo, but to take back Crimea, even, which would be, you know, a, a, a huge, huge um, kind of victory uh, for the Ukrainians. I mean, do you think that do you think that this is a society that right now can be blown up into submission with with tactical weapons? Well, we'll we can put the nuclear issue to a side, get back to that a little later. Yeah, I'm skeptical that it would work. I mean, I think one thing we've learned looking both at the analysis of whether the Afghan forces were going to fight aggressively and whether the Ukrainian forces were going to fight aggressively, that it is very difficult to predict the morale of a country and the fighters within it. But I think from everything we've seen so far, it seems like there is is high and sustained morale among the, the Ukrainians. And as you say, uh, the goals seem to maybe even have expanded beyond where they started at the beginning of the conflict. Uh, which was to try to to push the Russians out of the body of Ukraine and not uh, address the the Crimea situation. So the confidence seems seems quite high in in Ukraine, as as you know. So I have a kind of counterintuitive take on this that I want to share you with you all, uh, and I'll I'll caveat by saying I don't think you really know what this is unless you have a lot more information about what's happening inside Russia and perhaps a lot of Putin's head than, than I do. Certainly, uh, maybe other people have are in a better position to assess that. But I think we may be seeing Vladimir Putin blink for this reason. In the last three weeks, we have seen Putin take steps to kind of reestablish a line in this conflict. But it's a line that's well short of the original strategic goal of displacing Kiev, right? He's basically said, I'm consolidating my forces and doubling down on maintaining these separatist parts of Ukraine and establishing basically new legal parameters for saying they're parts of Russia now, meaning I am probably under my domestic law, arguably under international law. Nobody really buys it, but he can make the narrative entitled to do more to defend them um, than I would if they were just some allied part of Ukraine. And certainly symbolically much more important. At the same time, we see him, frankly, through at least one channel, which appears to be potentially Elon Musk floating a version of some sort of peace arrangement, actually not that different with the Russians were openly floating a few months ago. Thank God, Elon will save us all. I, I should say that Musk actually denied that on Twitter shortly before we started recording. I am aware he had denied it. I, I also know a lot of people still think it's a possibility he's talking to somebody about it. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, what I do think is interesting is that whether that aspect of this is true or not, I think there are signs that Putin is saying, look, here's a potential offer I, I may be willing to take. It's one very favorable to him. It's one that I don't think the Ukrainians are likely or necessarily should embrace because it would mean sacrificing much of their territory. And then most problematically, frankly, like, Putin's not a reliable guy. It's not like compromising with Putin as effectively the international community did in 2014 actually deterred him from coming back a few years later and trying to completely displace Ukraine and replace its regime again. I think 
the Ukrainian government has every reason to believe accurately that Putin would take a few months or years to recover, come up with a better, better strategy and take another swipe at this, uh, assuming he's still in power and alive a few years down the line. So there are lots of good reasons not to pursue this line, but I, I think it's actually a sign that Putin is under a lot of strain and pressure right now and may not feel good about where the conflict's going. We have a lot of reporting from inside Russia about pressure from even inside its internal circles. And then on top of that, you know, we also have the this kind of doubling down aspect is actually what we would always expect to come towards the end of the most successful version of this conflict for the Ukrainians, because Russia really unleashing the dogs of war and particularly Putin unleashing it is the last resort. I mean, certainly the the resorting to tactical nuclear weapons, right? That's the real last resort, right? But going to these other measures saying, I'm just going to start hurling things at different targets, make things as painful for people as possible. I, I really think that that's a sign that he's out of other options, not just tactical weapons, though that's probably part of it as well. But essentially, he's trying to say, I can make the status quo as dangerous and difficult as possible. I've got to sue for people to try and you know move in a direction that I want. So I don't know if it's unanticipated. Well, I think there's reason to be scared. I almost think it's an inevitable part of this military campaign that we're arriving at a stage and, and something that I, I hope and anticipate the Biden administration, Ukrainians, and lots of others have slowly been anticipating how to respond to and baking that into their policy calculus. So I know that I'm the official king of lawfare hot takes, like the hottest of hot takes, but I think this may this may be even hotter than my Thank hottest you. hot I'm take. I'm proud of it. Um, no, not in a good way, though. I guess I agree with you that this might be him trying to offer an off-ramp, but an off-ramp that gives him everything he wanted is just not an off-ramp. And, you know, th th right, th there's this kind of famous analysis. It's just and, an and alternative route. Yes, exactly. It's a, it's a detour. Yeah. Um, you know, right. There's, there's, there's this famous, um, kind of game theory analysis. You know, how do you win a game of chicken if, you know, two cars are driving uh, at each other? And the answer is you, 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 you rip your steering wheel out and you throw it out the side of the car so the other person sees it. And then you've won the game of chicken, right? Because now you've credibly signaled. And it feels like the annexation, the choice to annex the Eastern parts of Ukraine is that signaling because now he has staked Russian honor right? Which may be an old-fashioned concept, but I think the thing that runs a lot of Russian culture right now, he has to take Russian honor on this. And so anything less than now keeping Eastern Ukraine seems like it will immediately lead to the fall of his regime because he's getting pressure, not just from the kind of normal Russians who don't want any part of this, but also from like the real crazies to his right. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just pessimistic. Yeah, I have to say, I think I'm with Alan here. I mean, the <laughs> listeners, Alan just fist pumped. Um, I do find it hard to look at what just happened as a, a potential de-escalation. I mean, I suppose you could say, well, he can now go back home and say, aha, you know, we have Donetsk and Luhansk. They're now part of Russia. We can come home and at least have, have that, you know, on our plate kind of. But the accumulation of everything over the last month or so makes it really hard for me to see this as anything other than a doubling down, um, which I, I think is, you know, worrying because you end up in this situation where I'm not even going to try to to use the uh, game of chicken metaphor here because I, I think it would quickly become uh, unwieldy, where Russia is behaving more and more and more, you know, illegally, horrifically, whatever you want to say. And yet the problem is that you know, while it seems possible that Ukraine could actually win, however you want to define winning, the longer this goes on, the closer that we get to some kind of 
really, really dangerous nuclear escalation. And I I don't envy the people in government who are working through these problems right now, frankly, because it just makes me want to chew off my own fingernails and anxiety. Just to, just so I can clarify one thing, I actually think you both are agreeing with me. It's 100% an escalation. And it is trying to say, you know, here's targets that we're trying to eke out a win towards, right? He's doubling down on what he is now framing as a win. But that win is a much more limited win than the original goal of the conflict. And that's where the effort to realign the calculus of other parties, I think, comes into play. I just think it's a little bit too late and he's not a credible enough party on the other side for him actually to pull it off. And that's why But I do think it's a sign that he's blinking in terms of his goal of the original conflict or his original goal in this conflict. So, so uh, you know, this is really interesting um, and it's interesting and hard enough to think through if you're dealing just with the conventional arms. But of course, we're not. We're dealing with um, a nuclear superpower. In fact, the country with the largest nuclear stockpile in the world. Uh, and Putin has now pretty clearly... Um, signal might not be the right word, but he's clearly made comments that are intended to put the rest of the world on notice that, by the way, he has a large nuclear arsenal and he is in principle willing to use it. So I want to talk about the nuclear issue, right? I mean, we talk about tactical nuclear weapons as if they're just, you know, they're just they're just little nukes. And of course, it's worth noting that the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that killed the tens and hundreds of thousands of people would today be tactical nuclear weapons, right? They're just nuclear weapons. They can be used tactically or they can be used strategically, but let's not pretend that tactical nuclear weapon is no big deal. So, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Putin would use a tactical nuclear weapon and if so, how, but there's been less discussion, I think, and given President Biden's recent comments, it's worth thinking about explicitly about what America's response should be in the case that, Putin uses a tactical nuclear weapon, and let's assume that he uses it in Ukraine, so he does not attack NATO, in which case we really are in World War III land, um, uses it in, in, in Ukraine in a way that obviously will kill some people, let's, but let's assume he's not literally going to nuke Kiev, because that's no longer a tactical nuclear strike. You know, what should America's response be, and how should the Biden administration signal what its response will be, and is it doing a good a good job? So one idea that I have seen floated is that the United States might help Ukraine conduct a conventional strike on the base from which the tactical nuke was launched. That would obviously be a very big deal. It it reminded me a little bit of President Trump's decision in 2018 to strike the Syrian facilities that had produced the chemical weapons. There is obviously a huge difference between striking inside Syria. Assad does not have more nuclear weapons, any nuclear weapons, and Putin obviously does. But that was that was one thing that I had seen floated. I have no idea whether that's where DOD is. But the, the other question that I have been wondering about is whether there is a role for Congress in any of the signaling. And I, I see two arguments. They cut different ways. One is that uh, it would be very provocative if it becomes known that Congress is drafting an authorization for the use of military force in anticipation of something like this. On the other hand, I wonder if it could help uh, bolster the deterrent that you just mentioned. So I have no idea whether Congress is, is thinking about anything like this or whether the executive would want Congress to think about anything like this. Um, but that was a, a question that I had. 
I think it's a really good question because it does seem to me that if you're serious about, frankly, if you get to the point where Russia uses nuclear weapons, actually an essential part of the response actually needs to be direct U.S. involvement. Because at that point, your only deterrent from further use of the nuclear weapon is the fact that this is an escalatory step that the United States is willing to escalate back. That's a very scary prospect. It's not something to be undertaken lightly, but I don't know what else you do. Now, keeping it to a conventional response makes a lot of sense because you're saying like, A, I actually think there are big international and domestic law problems potentially with not doing anything else. that's certainly an international, but a little less domestic about using nuclear weapons otherwise, especially when you're not directed at us, right? But it also you know, does say, hey, to allies at least, we're going to try and keep this in the non-nuclear domain. But the U.S. involvement and the fact that that seal has been broken and the United States is willing to do it, I mean, that's the real threat to Putin further escalating along the kind of nuclear ladder. And that has to be the case. And I actually think the legal case domestically for having the authority to do that without congressional authorization is is a little limited. I don't know if that stopped the president in these particular circumstances. I kind of suspect it wouldn't. Um, and there are arguments that presidents have made uh, about why that's OK, that, that make it trot out again that we haven't seen in a long time. U.S. involvement, I think, has to be part of that calculus. And certainly if Congress were willing to endorse it, it seems a lot more credible. From World War III to Section 230. Oh, that, oh that's really good. That's mine. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. Go for it. That's so bad. Okay, but I, I, want, uh, I, I love want it. Credit. I want credit. Okay. Well, from World War III to Section 230. Thank you, Alan, for that suggestion <laughs> on a transition. Uh, let us go to our second topic, and that is the United States Supreme Court which has taken up not one, but two closely interlinked decisions that bear on, although it really only one bears on it directly, uh, the application of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the incredibly uh, controversial uh, and, and at times also centrally important statute that many people credit with having facilitated the development of the modern internet by providing internet service providers, internet companies, I should say, not service providers, with for legal protections for content that they host, produced by third parties, preventing them from being held liable for that content, also allowing them to engage in certain good faith moderation of that content, therefore allowing them to serve as kind of conduits for the speech-oriented activities we're all familiar with on the internet. Here we have a case where a number of plaintiffs who are essentially the victims of terrorist attacks targeted a number of major tech companies, Twitter and Google in particular, for liability under a civil provision that allows them to try and pursue people who facilitated different types of terrorist acts in different regards, very broadly worded statute as a civil liability provision of the Anti-Terrorism Act, to try and hold these tech companies responsible for having provided certain services that we're all familiar with for Twitter and YouTube in particular, owned by Google here, to groups like ISIS and other terrorist groups, specifically allowing them to post videos, allowing them to post tweets. And then specifically in terms of these cases, not just posting and hosting those tweets, allowing private users to do that, but then also, to some extent, arguably amplifying them, reproducing them, or packaging in certain ways based upon algorithms and other sort of program behaviors in ways that the plaintiffs at least claim is not simply reproducing those messages, but actually repackaging them, exercising editorial control and creating a new product for which those companies can be held liable that is not under these Section 230 protections. And then relatedly, we have a second case that kind of 
fearing that if cert was granted in this first case to reconsider this interpretation of 230 that at least up to this point most courts have generally said no 230 still applies in those circumstances are making a separate argument under the anti-terrorism act as to why a particular type of liability being alleged here isn't consistent with that statute that's separate from the section 230 provision there are two really interesting cases big big potential consequences particularly for section 230 potentially for the ata as well alan let me hand it over to you first Sketch out for us a little bit what this 230 issue is that they're raising, what their arguments are here, and and why we should be paying attention to this case. Yeah, no, this is this is super important, super complicated, and um, I'm gonna try to give kind of what my what my current thoughts on it. But this is an issue that I can already tell I'm gonna change my mind on 15 times between now and when the Supreme Court issues its opinion, and then a bunch more times after that. So the the main problem is that at the core of Section 230 is this provision that prevents. Um, these platforms from being treated as, quote, users or publishers of the stuff that their users post. Like that is the core of Section 230. And the problem is that that wording, which is now, you know, 25, 26 years old, has never been authoritatively interpreted by the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court is going to tell us, hopefully, what that wording means. And this is important because this liability shield is a huge part of what makes the current internet the current internet, right? Um, you know, whether or not you think that something like Section 230 is necessary for having a good internet or it's going to, or Section 230 has caused the bad internet, it is true that the nature of the internet as it is now is shaped by this immunity provision because it has shaped the economics of how these big platforms think. And shortly after Section 230 was enacted, there was a Fourth Circuit decision called Zoran, which interpreted this language very, very broadly. Basically saying, look, what this publisher user language means is that basically platforms can't be held liable for anything that their users publish, right? Or the users post on those platforms, right? And that's kind of been the dominant interpretation until the last few years when a combination of the tech lash, right, the backlash against big tech, plus some, uh, you know, scattered remarks from people like Justice Thomas and uh, and Justice Alito um, have suggested that maybe we don't want quite such a broad interpretation. I think there are two ways of thinking about this. One is, what should the answer be? I.e., forget 230 for a second or forget the details of 230. Like, do we want a system in which platforms are held liable for the amplification or the recommendation of this kind of content? What will it do to the digital ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera, onwards and onwards, right? It's a really interesting question. It's kind of an important question, but I have no idea what the answer is. So, Bracketing that, then you have the much more narrow legal question of, well, as a matter of statutory interpretation, what does 230 actually do, right? And how should it apply to this case? And here, it's really tricky. I think what we can say is that 230 is meant to do two things, right? If you look at the text and the context of when it was enacted. The first thing is meant to do is to make sure that companies that do some moderation aren't made any worse off in terms of liability than companies that do no moderation. Because, and people forget this, 230 was in part intended to help companies and encourage them to moderate the internet from pornography, basically, which at the time was the big thing people were scared about. This is why it's part of the Communications Decency Act. Okay, That's one thing it's supposed to do. The other thing Section 230 is supposed to do is it is supposed to support what was then the nascent internet and the nascent digital public sphere by limiting liability of platforms so that the platforms wouldn't moderate too much. Okay, so now fast forward 25 years later, how does that apply here? Well, with respect to the making sure platforms aren't punished for moderating, I don't think that a finding in favor of the plaintiffs or a limitation of 230 would have that effect, right? Because if they find that 
if the Supreme Court finds that the platforms can be held liable for this sort of amplification, that doesn't make the platforms, I think, any less likely to moderate. If anything, it makes them more likely to moderate. Okay, so I think there's no issue there. The real issue then becomes how much will it make the companies, the platforms, want to moderate more, which is the which is the opposite of the goal of the liability shield. Uh, and there the issue is we don't know. And the problem is the categories that Section 230 uses of publisher liability and therefore of the other two liabilities that were available at the time, distributor and platform liability, don't map on neatly to what is happening here. We just like the, the, these categories are 25 years old. And so there's no obvious way, I think, of trying to figure out what the Congress that enacted 230 would have wanted in this case. Then the question becomes, okay, well, so what should the court do? And I think there's an argument, kind of a second order meta argument to say, look, what the court needs is for Congress to decide this value question, right? There's no right answer here. This is just a liability regime. We just have to pick one, right? And because the status quo benefits technology companies enormously right now because of the expansive interpretation of Section 230. And the technology companies are the most energetic and resourced players here. If you want Congress to re-engage with this issue, what you need to do is you need to put the technology companies in a bad position. You need to strip them of a lot of their 230 protections because then they will all freak out and then they will go to Congress and they will demand that Congress revisit this and give them some of those protections back, at which point Congress can do what Congress is supposed to do in a democratic system, which is adjudicate and decide what the best liability scheme is, right? So it's this, maybe it's too clever by half, but um, I don't think we're going to get a good answer here by just squinting at the words of 230, because the, it's just an out-of-date statute, and we just have no idea how it should apply today, and we just need Congress to decide, and Congress will only decide if the companies which are the biggest companies in the world, freak out and make them decide. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, I should say, I mean, this is these cases are really complicated and I'm very much still thinking through them. I, Alan, if I understand you correctly, I, I might disagree with your point about to what extent addressing 230 liability, sort of removing 230 protections for algorithmic amplification might affect or not affect how tech companies moderate. Because my concern would be if you create a situation where 
amplifying material, downranking material, right? So a, a technique that platforms often use when there's material on the platform that they is, you know, problematic in some way is not, you know, totally remove it, but just, you know, prevent it from circulating as aggressively as it might otherwise. And so my my worry might be that if the court takes the view that some on some level uh, algorithmic amplification is not protected by 230, that companies would then lose the ability to make use of that tool that kind of uh, offers a, an interim option between just leave something up or just take something down. And and the options that exist in that gray space are, I think, have been, I think it's fair to say, have been increasingly important for content moderation. You know, you also see Right, like little notes on posts, that kind of thing. Um, and so I do think that this could potentially really affect the sort of the suite of tools that platforms feel comfortable in in using. So you could end up in a situation where moderation changes substantially just because, you know, taking something down is okay, but downranking it isn't, or something like that. I mean, I also think that the the big question, and I'm just focusing here on the 230 issues rather than the Anti-Terrorism Act issue, is how are we defining, you know, if we're, if we're focusing on, say, algorithmic amplification um, as something that is not shielded by 230 protections, where does that end, right? Um, and I think this is kind of the the tricky problem that you often get into, right? Everyone wants a reverse chronological feed on Twitter. Reverse cron is also an algorithm. It's just a very, very simple algorithm. Um, and so you end up in, in, you know, sometimes if you go all the way down this road, I think if I'm remembering correctly, Justice Thomas made a, a point, sort of suggested that in, in a dissent from denial of cert that, you know, it was a problem if uh, search engines were, you know, deciding what to show in your search results. I see his point, but on the other hand, if you have a search engine that shows you everything that in a completely undifferentiated fashion, what you've essentially done is reproduced that a uh, that uh, short story by Borges where the map becomes as big or bigger than the territory itself, and you no longer have a useful search engine. And so, I do think that the ramifications here are going to be potentially huge. And what makes me worried is not, you know, I I am definitely not someone who would say that the, you know, the current model of internet regulation is is hunky-dory. But as Alan, as you point out, you know, it's it's a lot easier to criticize 230 than it is to come up with a workable alternative. Um that is really, really hard. And frankly, I worry that the judiciary and particularly a number of the people on the Supreme Court have not given me any confidence that they're able to tackle that with the care and the subtlety and sort of understanding of the technical issues uh, that it needs. I totally, I totally agree, which is why I think in a sense, the answer is it has to be kicked back to the political process, to all the lobbyists, to all those armies of lawyers by the tech companies, right? And Honestly, the easiest way that that will happen is if the Supreme Court screws up the statute. I, I know this is like a very weird way of thinking about it, um, but I don't see any way in which the courts are going to be able to come to what is the socially optimal liability solution by squinting at a 26-year-old law that just has very little to say about the modern internet. I mean, look, in, in the long term, perhaps maybe you are right. I think what worries me is that you can do a lot of damage in that interim period when the Supreme Court screws everything up before it goes back to Congress and people's lives will be materially affected. 
So I just had, I had one quick reaction to Alan and one quick one to, to Quinta. So Alan, I take what you say as kind of good sense that it could ultimately be sort of platonically useful for the court to put the tech companies in a problematic position and then stimulate a kind of healthy congressional uh, response. But of course, that's a sort of policy move, not a legal move. And I just query, of course, whether the court will think about what it's doing through that lens as opposed to a kind of straightforward statutory interpretation lens. Quinta, you've written elsewhere about the sort of importance of empirics in this space. And, you know, as we know, courts are not uh, great at kind of uh, sussing out what the empirical result will be from a, from a particular move that they make in their opinions. Just one quick reaction to Quinta, you said, you know, y- you have some real concerns about an undifferentiated internet where there are no recommendations. It, it did strike me, and maybe this is the Luddite in me, that would it really be so bad to do away with immunity uh, for platforms, algorithmic recommendations from the user's perspective? It would be terrible from the company's perspective, but from the user's perspective, one of the things we're worried about on the internet is that people are just seeing more and more of what they expect to see, what their friends you know, agree with and so on. And would it require us to do more work in sorting through the volume of information to get to the information that we're looking for and not just be fed the the problem that we that we like to and expect to see. So I have no empirics behind that. So you can critique it on that. But it, it was just at least a, a provocation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I, I think it, it raises, you know, to, to go back to the empirical issue, right, that this question of to what extent are algorithms sending people down rabbit holes and sort of locking them within a particular epistemic universe, which is an argument that is cited in, I think, the cert petition in, I want to say, the Gonzalez case. But there's actually been some interesting research recently suggesting that maybe that's not so much the the case, that maybe the sort of uh, filter bubble problem is less of an issue that, you know, the the sort of algorithmic amplification, people falling down YouTube rabbit holes is more a question of the sort of the culture of YouTube and the draw of these kind of far right figures rather than something that's specific to the amplification itself, which, I, again, I mean, I think just points to the the kind of the difficulty of, as you say, you know, meshing the big theoretical questions here that really do go right to the heart of like, what is the future of the internet? What is the responsibility of these companies with the sort of questions of empirical outcomes? And many of which, you know, we're still figuring out and we don't have the answers to yet. So I want to pull in some of the ATA side of this, because I actually think there's this is a really interesting context for this to be arising and one that actually bears on all the questions we're, we're analyzing here. The ATA, that's the Anti-Terrorism Act provision we're talking about, the civil liability provision, is like this rocket fuel for legal challenges under various theories because it does two things. Um, it ties liability to a super, super broad underlying scope of conduct because it's basically like any sort of violent act or act that would violent act that would be illegal under international US law, excuse me, if it happened here or state law that has some sort of nexus to acts of terrorism. And that includes the material support law, which itself is incredibly broad and applied to a variety of circumstances, meaning you can tie a whole range of potential conduct to being kind of like the predicate acts of an ATA claim. And then it rewards treble damages, which when you're already talking about acts of terrorism, where damages awards tend to be in the millions, if not tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, treble damages becomes a major, major sums of money. For that reason, we've really seen it aggressively used by private plaintiffs in a wide 
wide variety of contexts, historically against financial institutions of all types for decades and decades, now being used against all sorts of actors, social media platforms being one. There's a very prominent, large, sprawling case that's been taking place against pharmaceutical companies for activities they undertook in Iraq during the, the uh, and engagement there with the Ministry of Health was under the control of the Mokhtar al-Sadr's movement there. Long story short, it breeds really creative litigation because it sets up economic incentives and legal opportunity to create these really novel legal claims. And so it's not surprising we see it being used to to push the envelope in this particular case, I think, uh, of 230. And that way, it and 230 are at complete loggerheads because one is a very broad potential claim for liability and the other one is a very broad uh, scope protection against liability. And they're going to run into each other eventually. It's already happened with sovereign immunity. Now this is the next kind of zone for ATA liability to, to hit up against in the courts. Here, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, that sets up a weird set of incentives for the social media companies or other tech companies that are subject to this, right? Because it means essentially, you know, a court's unlikely to come out of this. The Supreme Court is to in, set up limits on 230 to come out and say, here's a sharp, bright line. You're okay on the far side of it, but you're not okay on the middle of it. They're going to come up with some argument saying, well, for, the, for this reason, we think this particular case is on the wrong side of 230 protections. And it's up to the lower courts to figure out what's on the right side and not. Here's some broad principles, some broad, broad guidelines, guidelines. We're going to figure it out. And the idea in that sort of case is that you know, you're supposed to encourage people through the evolution of the law or kind of common law system to figure out, well, what's the most market efficient system? What is the system that actually works out best between the incentives of different litigants, both on the plaintiff side, defendant side, the courts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't work as well when you talk about triple damages, super broad causes of action, because it gives really strong incentive for those companies to just stop doing activity that could make them liable. Um, so I think it really sets an incentive structure where if there is an exposure to liability, tech companies are likely to be really, really conservative in approaching it. That's kind of what we've seen with financial companies. Like a lot of financial institutions, like just stop providing financial services in areas where they're at risk of intersecting with, you know, acts of terrorism and different actors that might be subject to ATA liability in ways that actually can be really damaging to those countries or areas where that's happening from a development perspective or an other U.S. policy equity perspective, because they're so worried about terrorism-related liability. In this case, the only other thing I would note is that this case is a really super weird posture. The ATA side of this case was actually a contingent petition for cert by Twitter that basically said, look, if you grant cert in this other case, the Gonzalez-Google case that Google was opposed to cert, we think that's wrong. You should not grant cert. And if you don't grant cert in that case, we've already agreed with the plaintiffs in our case, we're going to dismiss the matter. We have a settlement outside of agreement outside of court. But we're submitting this petition just in case you decide to grant cert in that other case. And on the separate ATA claim, which is really about the type of mens rea you can infer from different types of conduct under an aiding and abetting standard. And on top of that, they point out, and by the way, you have two other cases that are already have petitions for cert before you that you should deny because they get to the same issues. Um, but if you were to take up one of those, you should resolve our case after you hear that case and resolve along those lines. What ended up happening is that both of those cases were denied cert over the summer. But then, of course, Gonzalez was given cert and taken up, and this was given cert along with it. In my mind, I think that's a bad sign. I think that's a sign that at least four justices are ready to do something to change 230 liability. Because if they weren't, if they thought 230 liability was to cover this sort of conduct, then they wouldn't have needed to take up Tomna, this case under the ATA, because it already would have gone away because 230 liability would have gone away. They never would have granted the petition for certain Gonzalez in the first case. The fact that they have to take up both suggests, and that they have already denied certain other cases making similar arguments regarding the ATA, to me suggests that they're going to get rid of the ATA claim, the Tomna claim on this 
ATA knowledge aiding and abetting liability theory, and they've granted cert to do that. But you would only need to do that if you're going to come out and narrow 230 in a way that complicates whether that it would provide a separate grounds for doing with that claim. So it's, it suggests to me that at least four justices, that's the threshold for granting cert, are ready to mess with 230 or at least going into it open to that possibility. And I think that's pretty dramatic development if I'm reading the tea leaves right. Well, from from decency to a total lack of decency. Uh, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to Ashley for that excellent suggestion, saving me from mockery by Alan and Scott for my bad transitions. Uh, so OPEC announced a production cut in oil last week, uh, which has led to some outrage. I think it's reasonable to say uh, from around the world and particularly from Washington, D.C., uh, just this morning before we started recording, a uh, White House spokesman said, and I quote, um, that of the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, I think the president's been very clear that this is a relationship we need to continue to reevaluate. And then went on to say, and certainly in light of the OPEC decision, I think that's where he is. Uh, there's also been a fair amount of outrage from the Senate as well. Uh, Bob Menendez, who is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said, and I quote, I will not greenlight any cooperation with Riyadh until the kingdom reassesses its position with respect to the war in Ukraine. There's also, again, just before we started recording, uh, legislation introduced by Senator Richard Blumenthal and Rep- Representative Rokana uh, introduced, who introduced a bill uh, that would immediately halt all U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia for one year. And that's just a sampling of congressional outrage. I think there's there's been uh, quite a bit of it. So my main question here really is, you know, is anything different this time? Um, we've obviously, we're all at this point extremely familiar with a pattern where the kingdom nominally an ally does something outrageous, like, for example, murdering a journalist. Everybody uh, gets up in arms about it. And then lo and behold, uh, somehow it, it blows over. Are things different this time? Like, is is this actually going to substantially change the U.S. posture towards Saudi Arabia in the in the short or long term? Scott, let me turn it over to you. Sure. I, I do have to add, though, you left out my favorite congressional response, not to this specifically, although it's been resurrected in the aftermath of it, which is the bill called NOPEC, uh, which would essentially- That was a good one. Oh, yes. it's excellent. I love a pun named Bill, and it would subject OPEC to potential antitrust violations, uh, which evidently they are ex- excluded from for reasons I'm not entirely sure of, and am very curious to dig into the statute and figure out why, because uh, I was not aware of that, um, although it makes sense. So it's really interesting to see this sort of reaction. I think Saudi Arabia's actions caught people a little off guard. Obviously, there seemed to be this some sort of tacit understanding, maybe it was more expressed behind closed doors, that the Saudi Arabians were going to, you know, open oil production, keep prices relatively low, lower, lower oil production. I think they did for at least a brief period, help the global economy kind of recover, deal with the consequences of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its impact on the global economy, the sanctions that came after it. And by the way, that hurts Russia's bottom line. Like Russia wants higher oil prices. It has a, it is a relatively limited producer compared to Saudi Arabia and all these other countries. Uh, and so it benefits when you have lower oil production, it's higher prices because it produces the relatively small slice it produces. It gets higher dollars value from. And that's really important for Russia right now in particular, because fuel exports, oil exports in particular, are one of very few categories of goods that are relatively unencumbered by global economic sanctions still to this very day. And so that is a major, if not the major lifeline for Russia's economy, short of like 
China and India and a couple other countries that don't really participate in the global sanctions regime. So it's notable in that case that, that Saudi Arabia is willing to take this line. I think that's the most surprising part of this. I think some of the reaction to the Biden administration is overreading one press briefing a little bit. Um, we saw John Kirby, who's was a very smart guy, he used to work at the State Department when I was there, um, does a good job as spokesperson now, and a C spokesperson, I believe, at the White House, um, basically makes some statements, which are the things being quoted, saying, oh, we need to reevaluate this relationship and look at it again. He, if you read the whole quote, he's kind of saying that this has been our long-term policy. And that is actually how the Biden administration has framed its policy towards Saudi Arabia since the election, really, where a lot of people in the Democratic Party in particular are still very upset over the Khashoggi killing. Many of them have been long-term critics of the U.S. Relationship with Saudi Arabia. And the position has always been, yeah, we're still recalibrating and looking at that. That didn't actually change after the summer meeting. It's just the summer meeting was a lot warmer than people expected to be given that, that line. So actually, they think there's some continuity from the White House, which makes sense because you can have Congress here who's able to play bad cop. And that's what they're doing. They can come forward and say, hey, we're going to start slapping all sorts of penalties on Saudi Arabia if you're going to do something like this. And we're willing to do it. And then it comes to the Biden administration to say, hey, look, MBS, we need to talk about this. We need you to help us rein Congress in a little bit on this. Give us some sort of you know, hint, some sort of thing we can take, an olive branch we can take to Congress that makes it so that we can hopefully avoid some of these negative consequences. I don't think it'll be quite that warm or friendly, but like that's kind of the transactional nature of the good cop, bad cop relationship that frankly, in this relationship in particular, Congress and the executive branch always play. I think it's a continuation of that. The difference here though, it, maybe MBS won't budge. Maybe the White House isn't that interested in protecting it. Maybe they let some of these things go forward, particularly around arms sales. Like, you know, the arms sales, I don't know if they're as essential as people think they are. They could get held up for a year completely next and it wouldn't terminate the relationship. It would just be a major roadblock and a signal a shot across the bow for Saudi Arabia. NOPEC would be a much bigger deal if that actually went through. So long story short, I actually think it's a continuation of kind of prevailing trends that I think will continue to gravitate towards a, an ongoing relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, but one that's just a lot openly cooler than we might think of from the heydays of the late 2000s when, you know, George W. Bush and the king of Saudi Arabia at the time would hold hands and visit each other regularly. That sort of relationship has been gone for a while and is really not coming back, certainly in a, a Biden era. So I largely agree with Scott. I'm always reminded when I'm thinking about the, the U.S.-Saudi relationship of the the Lord Palmerston statement that countries have no permanent friends, only permanent interests. I think it was Palmerston. The internet attributes it to lots of different people, but I believe that that's uh, who said it. I've said that at least once on the podcast. I'll take <laughs> I'll take one of those internet credits. Scott, as, as Scott Anderson once said. There you go. So uh, on the NOPEC point, I took a quick dive into it and saw that it had basically been proposed on and off for the past two decades. So it is not actually a new proposal. And historically, both U.S. oil producers and the American Chamber of Commerce have pretty strongly opposed it. And I think there is a kind of parade of horribles that people think might flow from a, a statute like that. So it seems to me that's probably still a similar posture to where this has been for the past two decades. In thinking about how likely it is that Congress will be able to enact a statute that that does real work here. I'm just reminded of what happened in 2019. Uh, Scott, I know you had written about this, but this is where Congress passes this bipartisan resolution that would have forced the U.S. to remove troops that were engaged in hostilities in or related to Yemen. President Trump comes in and vetoes it. That, I think, was sort of a, a high point of Congress's real concern about the, the conflict. I, I'm a little skeptical that 
they will kind of get their act together as robustly this time. But I do think, Scott, you mentioned that maybe there'll be a provision, I guess, in the NDAA on this, that it would be hard for the president to to veto. It could also be that the, the White House decides just to kind of walk those sales back as a policy matter and avoid having Congress have to legislate on this one way or the other. I guess I'm curious what our sense is of, of what the scope of actions that the United States or, or really Congress here might take. Um, I mean, is is NOPEC, I, I can't keep myself from laughing every time I say that, is, is NOPEC the the strongest possible response here? Like, what is the menu of different options? But I, there's a lot of things Congress could do, right? Like the, the lowest hanging fruit one are arms sales, because there is an existing statutory provision that lets Congress, if they can get past a veto by the president, whether he chooses not to use it or they can override it, to kill the arms sales in this case. I'm, I'm assuming they fall within the bucket of that provision. I actually haven't looked into it exactly, but certainly in the past, that's been the reality. It would make sense that would apply here. So that's pretty low hanging fruit for Congress that they might be able to do that. In theory, there's a lot of other things. I mean, we have a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia. They have a lot of special status. They are, I believe, a close non-NATO uh, ally. I could be wrong about that. I know there are people who are eligible for ATCA uh, treaties. A- access, ACSA, Acquisition and Cross-Servicing Agreement. God, it's been a while since I've been in There you go. We're, we're having a lot of fun with acronyms this episode. I know. Oh, God, it's been a long time. It is a type of agreement that is used for allies to help like cross-support each other's militaries from a material like an equipment perspective. It, it's a significant sort of useful bill uh, or, or, or relationship that we have that's both treaty-based and statutory-based. They're eligible for those. They're eligible for a bunch of special treatment. And Congress could kill a lot of that if it really wanted to, right? The, the real question is, you know, it gets harder to start carving out things that don't have built-in mechanisms for it. That's why the arms sale seems obvious. NOPEC is another one where I just have to dig in and see how realistic it is. But I think for the reasons Ashley noted, like, it seems like a real reach. It would trigger all sorts of relationships problems. It'd be a pretty seminal shift in the relationship. There's probably stuff on the spectrum between those two. Another pressure point we have now is also, um, you know, head of state immunity potentially for MBS from civil suits in the United States has been another issue point. Now, in this case, it appears since they recently made him prime minister, they've kind of resolved that it's pretty accepted that prime minister, that becoming prime minister means that you do qualify for head of state immunity is a much bigger question before you achieve that status. But nonetheless, it's another sort of pressure point that the executive branch could employ there. Congress sticking its nose into head of state immunity would be pretty exceptional in a move it's it's avoided thus far, uh, although one that some people have advocated for in a more less case-specific context. Um, so long story short, there's a lot they could do, but the low-hanging fruit really, I think the arms sales is the big one for Congress, at least. Ashley, do you see anything else? Not off the top of my head. I mean, I think that does largely seem right. The um, Tom Malinowski and others introduced a, a bill with another great title, the Strained Partnership Act, which is trying to force the removal of 3,000 U.S. troops and equipment, um, including some Patriot missile batteries and THAAD systems from both Saudi Arabia and the UAE within 90 days. That was one of the more specific bills that I that I saw. Just one point on your on your um, your reference to the immunity in the in the litigation brought by uh, Khashoggi's widow, it it does seem probably right that he will now squarely receive head of state immunity. The question is pending with the Department of Justice uh, from the court asking whether the U.S. government wants to to weigh in. There's some possibility that the appointment is pretextual, kind of based solely on trying to get him immunity for this, partly because in the announcement, it sounds like King Salman noted that he would act as prime minister in any meetings that he was in. 
nevertheless, I think it would be unusual for the U.S. government to say we're going to look behind the title that you've given somebody to deprive them of, of immunity. But, you know, the, the, the background tensions are not going to be totally irrelevant to that consideration. Yeah. I think that's actually probably the next best. I think they have a filing deadline in a month-ish in that yeah. case when they're supposed to, the Justice Department's supposed to get back and they've already asked for one extension, if not more than one extension. And I think that's the most likely next real sign about if the Biden administration is really willing to do something pretty dramatic is if they somehow come out against head of state immunity or frankly, even kind of are a little wishy-washy and maybe leave it to the courts, which is something I think in theory they could do. They've done it. It's been done in other immunity contexts. So I don't know about head of state immunity. That would be a pretty dramatic kind of shot across the bow regarding the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but I don't expect it uh, to see it for the reasons Ashley noted. I mean, did you think that the Justice Department has been waiting on filing that in order to sort of maintain that potential route of leverage or no? I think, as I understand it, was that the the U.S. views on immunity were due October 3rd and the Saudis made the announcement just before that filing was made. And the Justice Department said, Judge Bates, could we have a little bit more time now that there's been this significant change in uh, what Ben Salman's title is? We need to, to have 45 days. And Judge Bates said, Yes, that's fine, but you're not going to get another extension. Yeah, I think that's right. And my, you know, I my suspicion is that the U.S. government had determined that he was not eligible for head of state immunity absent the prime minister status. They probably alerted Saudi Arabia of that through diplomatic channels, and then they quickly produced this development. That would be my guess. Or maybe Saudi Arabia got word of it through other avenues, intelligence, allies, who knows what else? Because it does seem like a little bit of a slapdash effort on Saudi Arabia's part to pull that appointment out. Um, and it doesn't seem like something that it, Biden administration would be inclined to coordinate with them in advance. If they had, you wouldn't have seen this weird timing misalignment. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time for conversation today, unfortunately. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over until we are back with you next week. Alan, why don't you get us started? So as anyone who has been in a marriage or a long-term relationship knows, it's very important to develop a love map, right? To figure out the little quirky things that your partner really likes. And it turns out that my wife really loves Chia Pets. I have <laughs> never had a Chia Pet but apparently my wife had a Chia Pet as a child and she loved her Chia Pet. And she mentioned this to me offhand a few months ago. And I filed it away like a squirrel fi filing nuts away for the winter because I knew that we had an anniversary coming up. And I bought my wife a Chia Pet for our anniversary, uh, which was a few days ago. Uh, we're going strong. It's really lovely. And my goodness, if you're into Chia Pets, the just delight, apparently, that it gives you to get a Chia Pet for the first 15, you know, for the first time in 15 years is just wonderful. So now there is a Chia Pet in the early stages of Chia growth, which is really gross, actually, because apparently you, you take these Chia seeds and you make this paste, and then you rub it on the hedgehog, like the, 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 the clay hedgehog, and it looks really patchy. It, it's, it, it looks really communicable. But but according to the box, it will be fluffy and delightful in a few days. And this Chia Pet is will be this wonderful symbol of our love. So if you have a Chia Pet lover in your life, buy them a Chia Pet. I think they will like it more than you would expect. And Chia Seeds and Sprout, great source of fiber and protein. Yeah, I guess I guess that's from right. Your, from that's your local true. vegetarian, so I'm told. 
Man, you know, the Chia company really had a good advertiser because as soon as you said Chia Pet, the advertising jingle came into my head. Me too. Chia, oh, Chia, absolutely. Chia, Chia. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chia, Chia, remember Chia, that? Chia. Oh, was that? They're right. That was oh. it. Chia, 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 Chia. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so if you guys want to, if anyone wants to sponsor, Chia wants to sponsor Ratsack, I'm available. I think an Alan Chia Pet would be amazing because oh, he's got, it's got a lot of facial hair and beard action going on right now. <laughs> it could go in all directions. It would work. It would work. All right. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? Uh, my object lesson has to do with voter fraud and stop the steal, specifically stopping the steal of Katmai National Park's Fat Bear Week, everybody's favorite uh, internet holiday. So listeners may be familiar. This is an event where every year in the fall, uh, this national park, which is in Alaska, hosts a March Madness style bracket where people can vote on their favorite fat bears who are fanning up before the winter for hibernation. But recently they announced on Twitter, the national park that they had received spam votes for their national bear week poll and were forced to discard fraudulent votes, which gave one of the bears, I believe the bear's name was Holly an unfair win. Uh, so they they've thankfully managed to, you know, restore integrity to the voting process and have reassured the denizens of the Internet that all will be fine. But I think it just shows, you know, we need we need election integrity. I think we need an audit. I'm deeply concerned about what this says about the state of our democracy. And I I encourage listeners to, you know, go out there, engage in some poll watching, get involved take a look at the bears, see if the bears are trying to pull anything funny. It's really upsetting. Is it was the bear's name Holly or Holly? Uh, I think the bear's name was Holly. That was a joke, Josh Holly. Oh. oh, oh, I thought you meant Howell. Like that, I know. Like I can't pronounce his name distinctly enough to yeah. make the joke, sadly. It was a good joke. It was a oh, good joke. It's worth a try. It's worth a try. Well, how could someone dare mess with such an important national institution as Fat Bear Week and the National Park Service? I, for one... Who, as someone who only uses their Instagram account to look at National Park Service photos, am horrified. So get on it, you know, FBI. This is the sort of thing we need to start investigating. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am sharing that I am in the midst of what may be one of the best musical weeks I have had of my life. Uh, because this past week, this past Thursday, I successfully completed what has literally been a decades long task uh, and quest in that I finally saw the band Pavement perform live. For those who don't know, this is a band that broke up my freshman year of high school before I even knew they existed. I got very into <laughs> over the course of college, had tickets to go see the last time they got back together in 2010 and then had to leave for a trip to the Middle East the day before and could not actually go. Um, and now finally, two decades later, it has happened. It was a wonderful act. And then this Thursday, for the, the, I am getting to see one of my favorite bands of all time perform a show in honor of the 20th anniversary of my favorite album of all time. That's the album You Forgot It in People by Broken Social Scene, the 2002 masterclass in album. I have got, I listened to it again the other day. Still my favorite album of all time. It's really, really phenomenal. Everyone should check it out if you haven't already. They're playing in DC two nights uh, this coming week to celebrate the 20th anniversary of this album. And I am checking it out live uh, on Friday. So if you're at the 930 Club, keep your eyes out. Say hi if you see me there. I will say this. If you have not listened to that album, be sure to check it out. And that is my object lesson. Go listen to Fred and people. It's 20 years old. Still as good as it's ever been. 
phenomenal album. Check it out. I know Neil, I know Neil Katyal agrees with me of the legal circle because he tweets about that band a lot. Uh, and so uh, in honor of Neil, uh, I'm sure he will he will double down and endorse. It's a second my endorsement of this one. Check out that I, album. I got to say that personally, I was waiting for Neil. Ka- I, I I await Neil Katyal's endorsement for any music before I listen. So I'm I'm really relieved. Between him and Marty Lederman, they really got you covered. I'm not going to lie. It's really quite impressive of your of your of your, uh, you know, 30 to 40 something indie rock crowd. Ashley, what do you have for us this week? So I have uh, a 1669 painting in the National Gallery called Girl with a Flute. This is the painting that had long been attributed to Johannes Vermeer, but the National Gallery of Art has just changed its mind about the the attribution. I think this is uh, one upside of COVID was that they were able to take down paintings and really give extensive study to some that are usually expected to be hanging on the walls. And the team concluded that actually the the signature paint application that Vermeer usually used was not present in this painting. So they did a, a microscopic analysis. It was pretty cool. They figured out that the strokes uh, were sort of done opposite from how Vermeer usually does it, which is uh, kind of rough underneath and then smooth on top. It just had a veneer of Vermeer. It had a but um bump but it's also, I liked it because it's part art and part science to attribute. And that reminded me of kind of the intelligence process and uh, which we, you guys talk about a lot on this podcast. It's, 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 there is some science, but it's definitely aspects of art. And then finally, I'm just interested in the question about whether we or I now like the painting any differently than how we liked it before we, before when we thought it was a, a Vermeer. So I'm trying to work through my own reactions on that. I will say that it was never my favorite of the Vermeer paintings that was in the National Gallery, even when I thought it was Vermeer. But I do wonder whether I'm suffering from some hindsight bias now that the truth has been revealed. But there is a broader Vermeer show at the National Gallery. So I encourage people to go see it. That's interesting. If I'm, I could have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure Vermeer is like, there was one guy in particular, I don't know if this is the same guy did this, who did a bunch of counterfeit Vermeers for a while, that were, many of which were circulating. And so he, it's like one of the most counterfeited artists of which a lot of museums had Vermeers in their collection that they discovered later were not in fact Vermeer. So at least there's a club of these. And that would be a hell of a show is to put all of these next to each other and show here's how we made these fake Vermeers, I would 100% go and see that Smithsonian. Well, you should you should mix in some real Vermeers with it and, and see make if people, people can identify them. Yeah. Well, I think that's what they're doing in the show. I think, Scott, oh. you might be referring to there were some 1920s faux Vermeers. I think this one, the, the interesting thing here is that they believe that the artist who painted Girl with a Flute was actually close to Vermeer and, and kind of worked maybe right alongside Vermeer in his studio, which is unusual, not expected because it had long been thought that Vermeer acted alone and did not have a kind of studio. And so this is is causing the art historians to to think more about that. But I do believe the show has a little bit of both. Ooh, I'm excited about this. Excellent. Well, good. Well, folks, with that, with that recommendation, which I'm now very much looking forward to, that unfortunately brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rash Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And while you're at it, visit our homepage at lawfareblog.com for links for past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and our other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. 
We're once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Ashley Deeks, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 